Welcome to Investing for Ocean Impact, the podcast making the business case for conserving our ocean. I'm Dorothy Hare. Almost all the blue nature-based solutions that we're discussing at the moment are based near or closely to shore. There's a reason for that. It's where people live and that's where a lot of the economic activity is happening. Yet the ocean is far bigger. So today we're sailing out onto the high seas, a vast and important area of our planet that receives comparably little attention. There is, however, a big push to change exactly that, to conserve, protect and sustainably manage the high seas. While a new international agreement is in its final making, there is, of course, an ongoing question. Who will pay for all of this? In this episode, we'll explore exactly that. Joining me are Professor of Ocean and Fisheries Economics at the University of British Columbia, Rashid Sumaila. Thank you for inviting me to join this. Thank you. As well as someone who's been working intensely on the High Seas Treaty, founder of the Global Ocean Trust, Torsten Thiele. Hello, Dorothy. Nice to see you. So, Rashid, tell us a little bit, what is the high seas? You know, the, the, the ocean, we have a big global ocean, and uh, there is the high seas and there is country water, so the exclusive economic zone of countries. And these are from the coast of a country to 200 nautical miles into the ocean. That's country waters. The rest of it is the high seas, and this is really large. This is two-thirds of the whole global ocean and half of the surface of the earth. So we are looking at a massive area. And frankly speaking, if you mess up half of whatever you have and you care about and it's useful to you, you are in trouble. So the high sea is that significant. But it's actually part of the global ocean, which is so important for life on earth. That is where climate is regulated, carbon is taken in, and so on and so forth. So the high seas is a kind of big part of the big ocean, which gives us so many ecosystem services. Torsten, and who looks after the high seas and particularly the conservation of the high seas? At the moment, we have no coherent system of managing the conservation of the high seas. We have regional organizations, such as the regional fisheries management organizations, and we have sectoral organizations, such as the International Maritime Organization. And so these types of bodies can issue measures in relation to those activities. But they don't take into account global biodiversity as a whole. And so we have no coherent global system to manage the high seas. And therefore, we are now discussing and hopefully finishing the negotiations on a new treaty on biodiversity beyond national jurisdiction, BBNJ, which will help to implement what the United Nations Conference on the Law of the Seas, UNCLOS legal regime, had already provided the structure for, which is a cohesive way 
of developing this management. Can you tell us a little bit what is currently in there or what should be in there for the protection of the high seas? So the new agreement will rest on four key pillars. It's about area-based management tools, such as these marine protected areas. It's about environmental impact assessment, so that in particular for new activities, we have a clear process by which to assess them. But it's also around marine genetic resources, so about for instance, potential for new drug development or for new blue foods. So all of that. And finally, and critically, developing countries in particular need technology transfer and capacity building so that they can fully engage in these processes. And so one of the ways to do that is to also strengthen the financial mechanism so that everybody can fully participate in the delivery. But it's a package deal. We need to get all of these points over the line if we want to have a solid agreement. And just to quickly add, uh, the reason Tustin is talking about everybody engaging is that the highs is, is probably one of the natural systems that is actually owned by all citizens of the world. It is something which is there for all of us. And, and, and to be able to really access the values and the benefits and the sustainability, make sure it keeps going, we need to engage everybody in the world because really it's for all humanity. And what about fisheries in the high seas, Rashid? Can you tell us a little about that and how does it link to this currently negotiated agreement? Oh, fisheries are important, right? I mean, we take from the global ocean about 110 million tons of fish each year. 110 million. And when I talk about tons of fish, people don't tend to get the picture fully. So what I usually do is say, if we convert this to the number of mature cows, and we assume that a mature cow is a ton in weight, which is a sensible assumption. Then we are pulling out of the ocean 110 million mature cows each year. Just think about the biomass. This is huge. This is about almost two times the, all the cows we slaughter in a year in the world, right? Now, that is the whole ocean. When you come to the high seas, we take roughly about 5 to 8% of that. Because most of the productivity is in the continental shelves, within country waters. And that's important. This is why the management of fisheries in the high seas is, is so important. Because for this 5%, you have to roam around half of the planet, the surface of the planet. It's very expensive to search for the fish. Carbon is emitted, and so on and so forth. So that's why this network of MPAs, or even closing the high seas to fishing, as some of us have argued, turn it into a fish bank for the world. So there's a lot in relation to fish that we need to think hard how best to manage the high seas. Thorsten, picking up on that, what do you think about the necessity and the role of marine protected areas, MPAs, in the high seas? Uh, marine protected areas are crucial to allow us to protect the key biodiversity hotspots in the ocean and to allow uh, fish stocks to recover, to allow the whole ecosystem to work. And so as we talk about species that have 
long distance migrations, so take turtles, take eels, etc. So we need to think about a connectivity of these systems. So that's why addressing area-based uh, conservation is, is so key, because we need to be able to ensure that these habitats and ecosystems work in their entirety. And the other thing to keep in mind is that the migration isn't just from east to west and north to south. It's also up and down every day. The ocean in the high seas is, is very deep. We're talking about four kilometers and more as an average depth. So protection needs to keep all of these aspects into account. And then Finally, we have this big debate just coming out of COP of climate change. What does that mean to the places that are so key in the global ocean? All of this needs to be considered in the design of a network of marine protection. And you just mentioned carbon, and that's one uh, ecosystem service that the ocean gives us life in the ocean, absorbs carbon, takes it down, right? And a few summers before COVID, I spent my summer in Oxford and worked together with Alex Rogers, and we did an estimate of the value of the carbon sequestered by animals in the high seas. And I tell you, even we were surprised at the numbers we came from. The value of the carbon is 10 times the value of the fish we catch. So this is, you have to look at these ecosystem services in a more comprehensive way. Look at all that the ocean and the high seas does for us so that you make an informed economic biodiversity ecological decision. So that's the kind of thing that this thinking can help us do. Indeed, it's a complex system with a lot of different values and services for humanity. Well, maybe we switch to the financing part of this. Torsten, really, who is going to pay for the protection and conservation of the high seas? <laughs> that is indeed a critical question, but I think the key point is the point Rashid just made. The value of this protection not just in ecological terms, but in economic terms, is massively larger than the cost of protection itself. And so that needs to be the starting point. So what we have at the moment in the proposed uh, agreement is a number of suggestions how some of that financing could work. It does indeed, first and foremost, have to come from the countries that sign up to the treaty. And so the member states, as they negotiate, now have the choice. They can go ahead and make these commitments as part of their regular commitments to financing international treaty, in this case the new one, or they can start to engage in discussing around innovative finance mechanisms, other ways to consider usage fees, other mechanisms where we can have participation in these costs from other parties, be it public or private sector. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the cost-benefit analysis of the equation is clear to most of us working with the ocean. The benefits are high. They're higher than the cost. So the net benefit is good. How do we raise the money? And there are a number of things you've highlighted here. One is that we need to think of... Uh, the high seas economy or ocean economy, in a way, right? It contributes to the global economy. So how about we say a percentage of the GDP contribution of the ocean economy goes back to make sure it continues to deliver these benefits? 
in Kigali, uh, this summer there was a big Africa Pax Congress that took place there. And some of the panels I was there, they are advocating for African countries, not the rich countries, to contribute 1% of their GDP to the protection of nature. I thought this is beautiful because you have a target, right? 1% may not be much. This country, some of them, their GDP is not big. But imagine the whole world, including the rich world, say this will go. And that amount can then create the enabling environment for the private sector, for other actors, for foundations to actually pump in money into the system. So, yeah, we need public funding. We need private initiatives, as always. The public will help us set up a nice framework so that investors can come in, knowing very well that they have the potential to generate returns in a sustainable way. <laughs> As usual, Rashid shows up with really exciting ideas. Other ideas I've heard are around, um, for instance, of a small fee on shipping containers that pass the high seas. And then as you think about the infrastructure that needs to be put in place to deliver, like satellites, for instance, those satellites obviously serve multiple purposes. This provides operational benefits for any of the ocean users. So that investment that we are suggesting as part of the protection is also an investment in better information for a lot of different people. And so that is a multiple-use structure and has multiple payment streams and benefits and revenue streams attached to it. So there are a lot of really interesting ideas, and we just need to put them in place. Yeah, you just talked about co-benefits, right? That can help us save two bears or more with one stone. You know, you don't kill the bears, you save them, right? So you want to have a scheme that actually does exactly what you say to state. That is beneficial for the target function we are looking, but also for other uh, multiple functions in a beautiful co-benefit way. Exactly. And, and one area I particularly like in that context is that The high seas has such an impact on what happens in coastal waters, in coasts, for real people. And so it's important for resilience as well. So just one thing, if we know about marine heat waves and other dynamics in the deep ocean space earlier and more precisely, and we can communicate that information, that has a really important benefit for their resilience. So that linkage is also important to explain to people the high seas are far out but they really affect all of us. What I tell them is fish don't care about our borders, right? They don't need visa to move from one place to the other, right? <laughs> so, so you really have to think in, in such a way, in a broad way. The connections are there. In fact, talking with indigenous people in Canada here, this part of their long-term culture, thinking about the high seas, right, and the connection and connectivity. So, yes, you may not see the high seas, but it's right there with you wherever you are on the coast, yeah. Indeed, very strong point. Well, let me maybe dig into one or two of the items that you just mentioned, because if I understand you correctly, we need the public 
money and, and public actors to really step it up, come in as enablers and really providing a bit the playing field. But then we also hear at the same time that public funding is becoming very scarce and limited. So what are these opportunities for private actors or the private sector, for private finance as well? Um, you know, are we talking about an impact fund for the high seas? Are we bringing in the institutional investors? <laughs> so... Obviously, we already have um, philanthropy as a private actor engaging with some of the marine protected area work in, in different spaces and testing things out. And I think as an enabler, as part of a blended finance structure, philanthropy does play an important role in this context. I think there's another real opportunity around the multilateral development banks and, and development finance institutions, because as they think about their projects more holistically and focus on the broader blue infrastructure, they will increasingly see the relevance of the high seas in this context. But we also already have some global institutions who are set up expressly to think globally. So it's called the Global Environment Facility, and they already have a program that links to the high seas as well. We have the, the Green Climate Fund. So as these global institutions look at this space, there's an opportunity there. But what I'm really talking about is what I would call public-private partnerships, structuring a new ocean sustainability bank, having opportunities for the type of impact investing that you just referred to. Whether this is a new special fund or we use existing impact funds, it is to understand these broader benefits and the long-term nature of that type of investment, which also then suits longer-term focused investors, be they pension funds, etc. And then the relative amounts we're discussing at the moment in the high sea space compared to what is being discussed globally under the climate finance space or under the biodiversity finance space is relatively small. So we can solve these issues with common engagement. What will it cost us to engage on the high seas? <laughs> so it's really interesting. There have been a number of efforts made to start come up with some numbers around it. And, and just keeping in mind that if we are successful and get an agreement over the line in the beginning, first quarter of next year, which would be fantastic, it will take years till it's ratified and in place and the process needs to get started. We need people start to say, these are the best areas to start with marine protection. These are the processes around environmental impact. So one of the proposals that I was involved with, with IUCN is to say, if we had a fund of say 500 million for the next few years, to kick off all these processes. That is probably the amount of money we can usefully spend in the coming years to actually put all the gears in place so that by the time the treaty ratification process is fully done, this takes a minimum a number of years. But during that time, we have to get going, we have to be ready, put it all in place, spend this type of money, which is a reasonable amount of money to put on, on the cards, to actually put us in a position to create the solid long-term structure around a high seas treaty. 
Wonderful. Yeah. So just to add a bit, uh, I want to pull back and just look at the investment space on the ocean and therefore the high sea. If you look at the services that it gives us, you can classify them into those services, economic activities that are really competitive. And so so are, you mean fisheries, for example? Or? For example, yeah, yeah okay. fisheries or agriculture and some of the new things, right? They can generate enough returns to compete in the market. And this is beautiful. They, the private sector on their own, will jump in because there's money to be made. Then there is a second category where they give you return, but it's not enough to compete in the market. So there's a gap. This is where things like impact investing can come in. Private, public partnership can come because the market can do some of the heavy lifting, but not all. And then you have services that the private sector will get nothing if they do it. This is where we need to use our scarce public funds, right? Because we, the public, know the value we get. So we support that. Now, this place where the public needs to spend money, we can play around. One of the things is the subsidies. There's a lot of public money going in, in my view, to the wrong things. The IMF estimates that. The oil and gas sector gets $5.4 trillion a year of subsidies. Just think about that. Um, imagine converting some of this to support the ocean, right? So there is money that we can use, actually, if we divert and use them more to help us ensure an ocean that keeps giving and delivering all these good services. How do we bring nature-based solutions into this discussion, Torsten? Can you explain a bit where you see the opportunities for NBS on the high seas? I see lots of NBS opportunities all around the ocean space. If we allow for activities in the high seas under the new treaty, we want those activities to be nature-aligned. So if we're saying, for instance seaweed farming is an activity that in future will not only be taking place in national waters, but will be placed in far out structures, then we want those structures to be built in a way that is aligned with the ocean, that works with nature. And as it turns out, those seaweed farms provide us with amazing blue food, but as they grow, they also are carbon sink during that process. So all these really interesting opportunities that we are discussing in the coastal space are exactly the topics that we need to discuss in the high seas as we think about activities there. So it's a great opportunity and it's in many ways at a very early stage. And that's why we can shape it. That's why we can make sure that nature-based solutions are seen at the core of sustainable blue economy development in the high seas. And the starting point is obviously just to see where we have activities today that are problematic. If, for instance, you run a ship through the high seas and you bring invasive species along, then you need to think about what can you do so that the keel of that ship is clean and the ballast water is clean and you don't bring anything along. But one of the technologies around these things the starting point may be poisonous. So let's turn that around. What can we work with nature to not have these negative impacts? So really important space for further development and discussion. And what do you wish for the next few months in terms of the implementing agreement? What's your wish? Oh, the key 
is that we get it over the line and we can only get it over the line if more people listen to your podcast, if there are more people out there who understand that this is one of the most crucial processes that is going on right now. So we have a real chance. We need to tell our negotiators this is important. We care. We have a number of countries that are in the high ambition coalition that are keen to get to this conclusion. So that's my hope, but it really needs all of us on board to push for getting a strong high seas agreement in place and signed in the beginning of next year. Yeah, this is beautiful. You just hit on my dream, and you just when you said a strong agreement, not just any agreement. Please, my people, leaders of the world, get us an agreement that means something on the water that will really maintain our natural system, our ocean, the high seas, and all the amazing things it does for us. So get an agreement and a strong agreement. Me and Tosin agree 100% here. So that's a dream. <laughs> A big thank you to Rashid Somaila and Torsten Thiele, and fingers crossed for a strong agreement at the BBNJ talks in February 2023. After our Christmas break, we're talking nature-based solutions and blue infrastructure. We have two exciting experts coming on to explain how they're working with nature to create sustainable infrastructure that serve local communities and protect global assets. And of course, how they are financed. Investing for Ocean Impact is a fresh air production on behalf of IUCN, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature. It was produced by Phil Sansom with production assistance from Kamal Joseph. To find out more about the subject, visit our website, bluenaturalcapital.org. I'm Dorothy Herr. Thank you for listening.